You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening. Hi. You cannot be a Christian without some knowledge of your sin. Uh, You cannot be a Christian unless you believe that there's only one path to God through the God-man Jesus Christ. And because of that, as Christians, we don't have the luxury to say, you know, all paths lead to God. We don't have the luxury to say, as long as you try your best, God will allow you, give you eternal life. We don't have the luxury to say that God just wants you to be happy. We have a pretty straightforward message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and He's the only way to the Father. And this is not always an easy sell to people to say that. And people would rather hear, there's many paths to God, as long as you're trying hard, it's good. So it's not always an easy to sell. And then our culture even more makes that difficult to, to sell the idea of Christianity. And in our culture, I think we can easily see that what is evil is called good. What is good is called evil. What is sinful is called virtuous. What is virtuous is called sinful. And there's a lot of examples. Here's one. We, we all know the Miley Cyrus. Maybe we don't all know. But that is just one example. Remember about a year ago, the big twerking thing with Miley Cyrus on MTV? Not, I'm not going to demonstrate twerking. Don't worry. Uh, if you don't know what it is, you know, let's just move, move along from that. But she was twerking on TV, and that was kind of made this uproar, but, you know, it was just whatever, just Miley Cyrus. And then at about the same time, remember, that was Phil Robertson from Duck Dynasty getting in all that hot water for saying what the Bible says about homosexuality. So Miley Cyrus's provocative dancing, and that's culturally acceptable. Phil Robertson, he's uh, unloving, he's controversial. So we see what's you know, sinful is called virtuous, what is virtuous is called sinful. And again, Christianity is a, not an easy sell. And when Christianity comes along and tells people to repent, it tells people they're sinful, that is only one path to God, a lot of times people don't want to hear it. And what's easier than admitting that is to bring God down instead of trying to, or to see how much God is above people. They try to bring God down. And in Job uh, chapter 40, verse 8, God says this when he appears to Job. He says, would you condemn me that you may be justified? And that verse to me explains like the whole culture. We would condemn God so that we can feel justified. So we, we try to bring God down from his perfect standards so that we can feel justified. And that's non-Christians. They don't like hearing about sin and that you need to repent and there's one path to God. And even a lot of times Christians don't like hearing about sin. So the, the problem consequently can be that it can be difficult to accept the fact that you're sinful. 
But this is where we find ourselves in Romans for the past like four weeks and then one more week. Uh, Paul has spent a couple chapters laying out that everybody is sinful in some way and everyone is under condemnation. And uh, I've compared this, I think like every week, that this is, Romans is almost an uh, essay on salvation and his thesis statement is the just shall live by faith. He's proving that statement in this letter. And the first thing he does to prove that is to prove it needs to be faith, not works, because no one has the works to be justified. So he, he's cutting everyone down, pointing out different types of sins. And a few weeks ago we talked about, and at the second half of Romans 1, the types of sins we usually think of as sinful, like sexual immorality. And then in Romans chapter 2, he talks about self-righteous sin, like thinking you're better than people and more holy. A couple weeks ago, we talked about hypocrisy and sin in that way. And with those three things, Paul has put everyone under condemnation, that everyone is sinful. And now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, that we're going to look at tonight, like we have today, people have a lot of objections to this idea of sin. People don't like it. And 2,000 years ago, when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, people had objections as well. And in these eight verses, Paul anticipates some of the objections to the idea of sin. This is called a counterclaim, if this is an essay. It's where you anticipate the opposing arguments and then refute them. And that's what Paul is doing here. There's four arguments he anticipates people would have about the doctrine of sin in these eight verses. So tonight... That's what we're going to to look at. And because it's difficult to accept the fact that we're sinful, as Christians we need to be ready to answer people's objections about that. So again, Paul is anticipating objections and then refuting them. And tonight we'll we'll be a little different. We'll read that and talk about it a little bit. But the objections to sin today in 2015 are different than the objections to sin in the first century Israel or even Rome where he's writing it. So we have, we have different objections to sin than they, they did. So we'll spend most of tonight kind of doing some apologetics, some defending the faith. What are the objections people today have to sin? And what are some ways we could help explain that? So my hope and prayer to serve you with this message is maybe you're asking some of these questions, these objections, questions uh, about sin, or maybe... You're talking to someone about Jesus and they have objections about sin, which is usually the case. And maybe it'll help to serve you, serve those people better, to help explain some of these things. Now, you're never going to debate someone to be a Christian. The Holy Spirit does the work of salvation. But knowing how to answer some of these problems can help open people's mind a little bit. You see, some people, their heart is softened to the gospel instantly. I mean, these are the people who can... I know the day and the year that... I was saved. I know the day and the year the Holy Spirit entered me and Jesus saved me. Sometimes it's like that, but sometimes, like me, it's kind of over time. I don't know exactly what day Jesus saved me and the Holy Spirit entered me. But it was, it was little things over time, and knowing that Christianity is not blind faith, there's answers to objections people have, that helped to soften my heart over time. So if you, know, you already are a Christian, you're not asking these questions, maybe it can help you. You know, guide someone to to consider these things. So that's that's the purpose tonight. Uh, so, and sin is very objectionable. People don't like about it, so they'll have objections, questions, just like they did in the Book of Romans. They have today. So first, let's look at what are the objections in the Book of Romans 
to stay biblical about this, and then we'll look at our culture today. So in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul brings up four objections people might have to the idea of sin. Now also, there's a lot of objections people have to Christianity, a lot of questions. So that could go on. People write books about that. So tonight, it's just in particular, the idea of sin and hell is what we're looking about. Not every problem people have with Christianity, but just about the particular issue of sin and hell. So in Romans chapter 3, the first objection in the context here, Paul has just finished calling all the Jews, basically, hypocrites if they believe in external signs of salvation. And he focused on the idea of circumcision. We read that a couple weeks ago in chapter 2. So after he does that, after he calls people who trust in outward appearance things hypocrites, then he anticipates some objections to that. And the first objection he thought people might ask is, well, if, if we're Jewish and we trust in outward things, what is the point of being Jewish? Why is it good to be Jewish? That's what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? So there's the objection. He responds, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So he's anticipating people might ask, well, what's, why is it good to be Jewish? His response, well, they have the Old Testament, the oracles of God. So that's a huge advantage. They already understand who God is. Compared to Gentiles, they've got to learn it all from scratch. So he's saying, hey, it's still good to be Jewish, even if the laws have changed, even if Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant laws, and circumcision doesn't mean the same thing as it used to. He's saying, hey, it's still good to be Jewish. You kind of have a head start on the Gentiles. So that's the first objection, and then he counters that. The second objection, then based off of that, so what's the point of being Jewish? Well, they have the Old Testament. Then he thinks, well, then what if people don't believe the Old Testament? That's what it says in verses 3 and 4. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So the objection is, yeah, we have the Old Testament as Jews, but what if people don't believe it? Does that make it have no power, have no effect? Paul says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And so he's saying, even if people didn't believe the Old Testament, that doesn't change God. God is true and every man's a liar. So it's still, the promises were still in effect and so forth. And the third objection he thought people might have to the idea of sin was that humanity's sin can show how righteous God is. People have a similar objection today. So in verse 5 it says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. So again, the objection, the objection is, uh, God's righteousness is revealed by sin because it shows how perfect He is. So why is He judging sin if it shows how righteous He is? So he counters this. He says, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? So he's saying that God can't judge the world if he doesn't judge sin because that's an act of love and God can't call himself just, a perfect, holy, just God, if he just gives everyone a free pass. And we'll look at that more in a minute. But that's an objection we still have in common with today. Fourth objection is kind of similar. he, He anticipated people might say about sin, well, can't my sin show how righteous God is. Like maybe God can make good out of it, like Joseph in the book of Genesis. 
Or maybe you'll share about your sin with someone and that, that might lead them to Jesus. So he thinks that people might object to sin about that. My sin might point out how holy and just God is. So that's in verse 7. It says, For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? So the objection, why is God judging sin if sin points out how holy he is? And I like Paul's response. He says, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm, we say, their condemnation is just. He's basically saying, are you for reals, guys? You, you really have, are you serious? He doesn't even deal with it. He just, it, you're saying God shouldn't judge sin because it makes him look more righteous. He just kind of said, just think about it. It's not that complicated. And so those were some objections, again, about 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, in, in Israel, and in Europe. And today the questions will be a little different. So I, I thought about what are some of the objections, questions, problems people have with the idea of sin and hell today. I came up with eight things. We're going to talk about eight things. Uh, then again, hopefully maybe if you're asking these questions, you wonder them, or if you know someone who is, maybe to help you talk to them, but also just to understand God better. I really geek out about apologetic stuff. I read you know, the books about it, and I, I enjoy it. So hopefully you enjoy it too. Okay, so here's eight objections people have about sin today and how you can maybe help people to understand these things. First one is people say, why can't God just forgive people? If God is loving, why can't he just say people, they're forgiven without having to believe in Jesus? So a couple ways you could respond to that. First, God wouldn't be just if he just overlooked sin. We don't like that from an earthly viewpoint when we, people get off with things for free. So we can't, God couldn't call himself a God of justice and also say, hey, I'm just going to overlook everything you ever did. You could also, secondly, I mean, if God could just forgive people, well, then who should he just forgive? I mean, what people always think, yeah, he should forgive me. I'm a pretty good person. But should he just forgive child molesters? Just overlook that? And then you have the question of, well, where's the standard? What does God just forgive? And then what is something where people deserve hell? Um, there, there's, it's a very, I don't know, how do you say, variable standard. And that can create a lot of problems. So if God just forgives people, people still think there should be a standard. But I think the best way is to, to explain it like this, that sin biblically creates a debt, is how the Bible talks about it. Uh, we see this in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says to forgive us our trespasses, or that can be translated, forgive us our debts. Uh, it says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, that phrase, handwriting of requirements, could also be translated, certificate of debt. That was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's an awesome verse. It's saying, Jesus, we had a debt because of our sin that we couldn't pay, and Jesus took the debt and nailed it to the cross when he was nailed to the cross. I love that verse. But the the point is, sin biblically is seen as a debt, and the payment for that debt is death. The wages of sin is death. And even when a debt is forgiven... Somebody has to pay for it. So if uh, maybe if you're very angry at me, because I keep talking about sin week after week after week, so one of you sneaks out and slashes the tires on my minivan, I'll admit it, okay? I have two kids, slash the tires on my minivan, you uh, t- 
take a baseball bat and crack the windshield and all that. And then you come back and there's, I don't know, I, I could figure it out. Maybe you have glass stuck in your hand. So I know it was you who did it. So I could make you pay for it and say, hey, you're going to pay for slashing my tires, for breaking my windshield. Or I could forgive you and say, no, but then who's paying for it? I am. Even if you forgive a debt, someone still has to pay for it. And so if God just says, I forgive you for no reason, just because, someone still has to pay that debt. A debt isn't just erased, it needs to be paid. Someone always pays for it. This also explains why it's so hard to forgive people. Because what you're doing when you're forgiving someone is you're taking on their payment. You're saying, I'm not going to make you pay, but I'm going to pay to pay for the debt that you owe me for forgiveness. Yeah, that's right. Uh, So a debt always has to be paid for. That's the way a debt works. And... Finally, so why can't God just forgive people? You could also say, well, He kind of does through Jesus. I mean, our, our God, the Christian God, the true God, doesn't make people earn their forgiveness. He doesn't make people work for it. He does forgive us by accepting His Son's payment for our debt. Um, and that's why He sent His Son to die for us, because we couldn't pay. So when people object in that way and say, God should just forgive everyone, well, He does. That's the good news. You can't earn it, it's already forgiven. You just have to accept that payment. So that's first objection. Why can't God just forgive people? Secondly, second objection about sin. Uh, what if my sin isn't hurting anyone? It, the, one of the problems with this, people object to, well, what I'm doing isn't really hurting anyone. I mean, No man is an island, as the saying goes. But we also don't have a full understanding on the extent of our sin, just how deep it goes. Just exactly who it affects. We don't, we don't know. That's one of the problems about sin. We don't think it's as bad as it is. But this could be kind of hard to answer without a specific sin. But here's an example. Let's say uh, you're a single guy. And like a lot of single guys, even a lot of married guys, like to look at pornography. And you could say, oh, I'm a single guy. Who's it hurting? No one knows what I'm clicking on. It doesn't hurt anybody. But, you know, the... the People in it, the vast majority have been a victim of abuse. So we can't just say, oh, it's consenting adults, so it's fine. Uh, and that creates a, psychologically like a neural pathway to seeking that type of pleasure. So you train your, your body to pursue that instead of intimate relations with your spouse. And even though if you're not married, I mean, that could still affect you later on when you do get yourself a wife. And so we can't. I mean, that's just one example of maybe we don't understand all the consequences of our sin, exactly who it affects and who it hurts. So we can't just say, my sin doesn't hurt anybody. I do it in the privacy of my house. That's not, that's not how it works. Third, third objection. It's not fair that you can go to heaven just by believing in Jesus. A lot of times people don't like that idea about Christianity, that you can go to heaven just because you believe in Jesus. People feel like that's kind of cheap or that you can be a jerk your whole life and then go to heaven at the last second because you said you believed in Jesus or because you can say you believe in Jesus when you're in uh, junior high and then do whatever you want your whole life and then get to heaven. So people don't like this idea all the time. It's a very common objection. Well, underlying this objection is a false supposition. It's People don't have the understanding... This is, non-believers get very mad 
when you tell them that they're going to hell. Because to them it sounds like a judgment. The false, the underlying premise here is people think bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven. So when as Christians we tell non-believers you're destined for hell, they think you're judging them and saying you're a bad person. And when you say I'm going to heaven, they think you're being self-righteous and calling yourself a good person. But that's not, that's not true. That's just the false belief underneath it. It's like uh, the Sadducees. In the week before Jesus died and resurrected, he was at the temple teaching people about God and the, the new covenant. And there was a bunch of religious groups as bringing up objections to Jesus or questions, like trying to point out flaws in his theology or his beliefs, like people do today. Uh, wait, I'm about to make a Gremlins 2 reference. So buckle up, we like Gremlins 2. If you've seen Gremlins 2, I like making outdated references. Hey, but uh, you know Gremlins where, where they put the water and then they pop out other Gremlins? If you know what I'm talking about, this probably sounds really weird. Hey, Joe knows exactly what I mean. Because hey, they're Mogwai and Gizmo. Anyway, so if, if you get water on the Mogwai, they, like, balls pop out and they reproduce into little Mogwai. And then if they eat after midnight, they turn into evil Gremlins. Yeah, that was Gremlins 1. Then Gremlins 2, they're making fun of it. Like, what if he has a seed stuck in his tooth and then eats it after midnight? Does he still become a gremlin? I mean, it's the same kind of thing. I just want to talk about Gremlins 2 for a little bit. Probably didn't need that. It's, but it's the same kind of thing. It was religious groups trying to come up with these crazy, exaggerated situations to try to trip up Jesus. And one of the objections was from the Sadducees. And they didn't believe that there's a resurrection. They didn't believe that people... As we do as Christians, because Jesus resurrected, we are going to resurrect as well. Our spirit is going to return to physical bodies, perfect physical bodies, and there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe that. So they're trying to point out to Jesus, well, here's some holes. So they asked him this question. It says in the Bible that if uh, a man and a woman get married and the husband dies before they have kids, then the brother of that husband is supposed to marry that woman to continue on the family name. So they said to Jesus, well, what if in that situation the second husband dies, and so the next brother has to marry her, and there's seven brothers, and they all die, and they all marry this one woman. And then they say to Jesus, well, whose wife is she in the resurrection? Like the implications, if that's even true. But Jesus says, whoa, you don't even understand. He said in the resurrection, people aren't even going to be married. So your little way to trip me up doesn't, doesn't even apply. And I think it, I bring that up because it reminds me of this. When people think heaven is for good people, hell is for bad people, it's like that's, that's an erroneous assumption. That's not how it works. And heaven is not good, it's perfect. If heaven was good, it'd be like this earth, and who wants to live on this earth for eternity? Okay, heaven and the new earth is eternal and perfect. But the problem is we're not perfect, and that's the good news of the Bible, that Jesus takes our sin upon him on the cross and gives us his righteousness, and we put that on, and we're seen as perfect, we're seen as forgiven. But heaven is not for good people, hell is not for bad people. Heaven is for perfect people, and the only one perfect is Jesus, but God sees you as positionally righteous through Jesus if you accept his payment. So that's one way to, to... answer that objection. That's not fair. You get to go to heaven just by believing in Jesus. It's not about being good and bad. No one's getting into heaven on their own merits. But also, 
It's the, the idea of believing. People trip up over that word believing because they, they think it can mean, like I just said, you could say, I believe in Jesus, but then do whatever I want my entire life. It's not just believing in Him, but it's giving Him your life. The Bible says over and over that even demons believe in Jesus. The demons probably have it figured out better than anyone else, and then the Gospels at least until, well, I shouldn't say better than anyone, but better than a lot of people. Demons know Jesus is the Messiah. Demons know He's the Son of God. Jesus, demons know Jesus is the Holy One of God, they call Him. But demons aren't getting into heaven because they believe in Him. It's not, believe means laying down your life trusting in Him. And so people get hung up on that word, belief. But it's not just in your head saying, I believe in that. Furthermore, Jesus changes you when you accept His payment. He sends the Holy Spirit to live in you. So you don't get to do whatever you want your entire life and say, I believed in Jesus when I was in junior high, so I'm set. You have to surrender your life to Him, and then He changes you. And the things that used to give you pleasure sinfully no longer do. They now bring shame to you. Also, finally, there's a lot of ways you could approach this, and you could also agree with someone. You know, it isn't fair that we get to heaven just by believing in Jesus. What's fair is we go to hell to pay for what we've done. That's why it's grace. That's why it's the gospel. It's not fair. And that's what's awesome. We, no one deserves to go there, but we get to because God loves us enough to send His Son to pay our debt. A fourth objection to sin. People might say, I haven't done anything all that bad. Uh, you know, comparing themselves. You know, I understand child molesters and Hitler, they should go to hell, but I'm a pretty good guy. So I haven't done anything that bad. It's kind of like what we talked about earlier, that people don't always understand the extent of their sin and just how deep it goes. And we think our sins are little when we think God is little. So if people, if you don't have a healthy fear of God, you're not going to think your sins are all that bad. So let me, let me try to illustrate this. Uh, so let's say you go outside in your neighborhood and you see a kid pulling legs off of a bug. And you're like, all right, I'm glad the kid's outside playing. No big deal. Let's say you go out the next day. Now the kid is pulling legs off of a frog. And now you're starting to get a little creeped out. Yeah, it's just a frog, whatever. The next day you go out, and the kid is pulling legs off of a cat. Now, now you're like, oh, I don't, let's not invite this one to my kid's birthday party. You know, let, let him be the weirdo down the street. I mean, by now you're probably getting pretty concerned, pulling legs off a cat. Well, then you go out the next day, and the kid is pulling legs off a human baby. Hey, now who? You're calling the cops. I mean, that's way beyond over the line. And what changed with that is not the sin. He was just pulling, he was pulling legs off of things. What changed was who he was doing it to, who he was sinning against. And biblically, well, this reminds me of David, King David in the Old Testament, the king of a united Israel. And he was called a man after God's own heart, a very important guy in the family line of the earth, the, where Jesus is coming from in an earthly way. And Jesus, or David, committed adultery. He saw a lady bathing on the roof and went over there, and he was married and committed adultery with her. And then to cover it up, he murdered her husband, Uriah, by sending him into a battle that he knew he would die. After doing that, in Psalm 51, David reflects on that experience and how much sin is involved in that. And he says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. 
So David says, after committing adultery and murdering the husband to cover it up, he doesn't say, against you, Bathsheba, have I sinned. He doesn't say, against you, Uriah, have I sinned. He says, against you only, God, have I sinned. So to to connect these two things, all our sins are ultimately against God. So what you're doing, if you realize who it's against, it becomes much more intense. Just like the little kid, when he's pulling legs off the bug, you don't think it's that big of a deal. But pulling legs off a baby, that's a huge deal. So whatever you're doing, even if you think it's a little thing, it's against God. And when you realize, think of who God is, perfect, holy, and just, and loving, and all you're doing is against Him, then there's no such thing as a sin that's not that bad. Because you're sinning against God. It's not necessarily the sin, it's who you're sinning against. And our sins are so bad that God, the Son, Jesus, came to die for them, to pay for them. So there's no such thing as a sin that's not that bad. Another erroneous assumption. Number five, fifth objection. Why did God give us the ability to sin? And this is a tough one. Um, okay, first, you, you could say God did not create evil. That evil is the absence of good. Just like darkness is not a thing, darkness is the absence of light. Uh, cold is not a thing, it's the absence of heat. Evil is not a thing, it's the absence of good. Or you could say the absence of God. So when God created the universe, He said it was very good. It was all good. He didn't create the evil. He made it very good. Evil is the absence of good. So then, when God's you know, creating the earth, it, it could be helpful to think from this perspective. First, God didn't have to create the earth. He didn't have to create people. It's just like us as parents, we don't have to have kids. It's because we want to. God lived in perfect fellowship. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity... In perfect, loving fellowship, they didn't need us to or anything. God wanted to create people for His own pleasure, for His own enjoyment. And so once He decides to create people, then there's a choice of, well, do you create people who can't do evil? But then you have robots. Nobody likes robots. We might want to. But here, wait, another outdated reference, Terminator 2, right? What is that coming out of your eyes? They don't even understand tears. Hey, we don't want robots. Uh, so God doesn't want robots. He wants people who know good and evil. Um, so that was one thing. He could have made the earth without any evil. Or He could have made us without the choice to commit evil, but then we're robots. He could have made no such thing as good, so then there's no such thing as evil, but no one wants that either. So God created the, us and the earth in love by giving us a free will, with the ability to choose good over evil, and we all choose and have chosen evil over good. So God gave us the ability to sin, you could almost say out of an act of love. But this is a tough question, and I don't know if that will fully answer it for a lot of people, but I I could think like this. A couple days ago, I was putting Nora down for a nap. She's two. I was putting her down for a nap, and she wanted to take a nap with her jump rope. And, uh, you know, I love Nora, and I, I wanted her to survive the nap, so I didn't let her take a nap with her jump rope, and she got very mad. From her point of view, I'm just a meanie taking her jump rope, and she doesn't understand, hey, there's some bad things that could happen when a two-year-old's in a room alone with a jump rope. Accidents happen. And that's, she's two, I'm 29, and that's just, a, and we're both humans, that's not a huge gap. But when we think we are sinful, mortal people, 
and God is eternal, loving, just, holy, how can we think we can understand everything about him? I wouldn't even want to worship a God I could fully understand. So even the difference between a two-year-old and a 29-year-old doesn't understand the different perspective. How can we think we understand everything about God? I mean, it might be, I know people might be mad at that answer. It's like you're avoiding the question. But really, I, I think it's a good point. We can't understand everything about God. If you could, I wouldn't want to worship him. He's way beyond us. If I could understand everything about God, he's not, uh, what's the word in the Bible? Indescribable? Yeah, I don't know. Let's just move on. And number six. Okay, this is, oh, here's another tough one. If God gave me free will, why would he send me to hell for using that free will not to worship him? Hey, oh, now you're getting tricky. Hey, it's a tough one, and the answer is pretty tough, too. At least one answer. I mean, there's no answer, but these are just ways you could approach. So if God gave us a free will, why would he send me to hell for using that free will not to worship him? Again, it's a tough answer, but really in that situation, God is giving you what you want. People have this perception that heaven is basically what you want. We kind of create our own heaven. A lot of times people think that. But heaven is God's kingdom. The new earth is God's kingdom. And if you don't want to worship God now with your free will, are you going to want to be forced to in his kingdom for eternity? And so it's God giving people what they want. We talked about this a few weeks ago. When God gives people over to their sins, sometimes that's what it takes for them to see the path they're heading on. So God is giving someone, no, someone who doesn't want to worship God now is not going to want to worship him for eternity. And, but that's not what God wants. God wants us all to repent. That's why he provided payment for your sin, because you couldn't make it. So he provided that through his son. So that's not what God wants, but sometimes what you want is what's going to happen. And the best case scenario for hell, I mean, we don't know exactly what hell is going to be like, but here's, here's the best thing you're looking at. If, if you don't want to worship God in this life, is this world without good, with evil, totally unrestrained, and everyone free to be as self-righteous, self-involved, self-centered as they could possibly be. And that's best case scenario. Biblically, more than likely, it's going to be much worse. A conscious eternal torment is the picture the Bible paints about hell, what Jesus paints about hell. And you're, you don't want to go there. I mean, it, it's... It's not difficult. Again, it's accepting Jesus' payment for your sin, but it is difficult to be, to have the humility to do that. Um, and especially if you compare that. If someone doesn't want to submit their lives to Jesus, to surrender their lives, well, think about what are you currently worshiping? Because everyone worships something, and it's not going to be, it's going to be much harder to please that God than it is to please Jesus, the God of the Bible, because everybody worships something. It's what are you giving your life to? What are you giving your emotions to? What are you giving your time to? What are you giving your money to? These are things that may indicate what you're worshiping. I've worshipped a lot of different things in my life. I've only been a Christian about three years, and I think back, I went to call to worship them, but that's what it was. It's what I was giving my life to. And I would say at one time in my life, I could have said I was worshipping the God of marijuana, or maybe you could say, maybe not just have altered consciousness, what, you know, that whole thing, like I was smoking, drinking, even pills and all this stuff, and that, at that time in my life, that's what I was worshiping, that's what I was seeking, and every week looking forward to 
finding that on the weekend, being bummed if I couldn't. And that's what sort of everything revolved around. But that's a tough God to worship because every God requires sacrifices for you to make. And so just one thing, I mean, smoking a lot of pot, you get the munchies. I would eat bags of Cheetos at a time. I put on like 50 pounds I still haven't been able to lose. So sacrificing my health, that's a something you have to sacrifice to please that God. I got in some legal trouble. I got caught with it. Okay? But still, continuing. I lost some friends over it. But those are the sacrifices false idols cause you to make. That's a tough God to please. And well, let's compare that to the true God, Jesus. As uh, Pastor Dave taught, said this morning, Matthew 11.30, Jesus says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay? Worshiping Jesus, the true God, is much less of a burden than whatever it is you're currently worshiping. I mean, weigh out your options. It's worship this thing that's never going to provide true satisfaction. That's why people worship multiple things throughout their life. Worshiping God that requires you to make sacrifices that aren't ever going to be fulfilling and then end up in eternity in hell for choosing not to worship the true God or worship a God whose yoke is easy and his burden is light and he's gentle and I'll give you peace and then eternal life. Seems like it's not that hard when you weigh out your options that way. Uh, but again, that, that is a tough question, and hopefully that makes some sense. This was why I'm bringing up this one. I asked Adrian, my wife, what are some objections people might have about the idea of sin and hell? And she said this question was her big one. This is what she'd always ask her mom and her family and people. You know, she grew up in a very Christian household, but didn't really follow it till a few years ago like me. And this was her big question, and you know, hopefully that could be, if that's anyone else's question, maybe a, a different way of looking at that. But it is tough. Uh, seventh objection. How can a loving God send people to hell for eternity? How can a loving God send people to hell for eternity? These are getting pretty tough. And you could explain this by saying, hey, you're not punished for your sins, you're punished for your sin. And what's the difference? You are a sinner to the core. That's what you choose to do. Your entire nature is corrupt and sinful. And the sins you commit are just an expression of that sinful nature. So time doesn't provide atonement. I think a lot of times people think hell is kind of like prison. And yeah, you can go there and do your time and then it's paid for. But that's, that's not it. Again, it's your sinful nature is sending you there, not the actual things you commit. There may be varying levels of punishment, but it's for your sinful nature. And if you're guilty now, you're always guilty. Even us in our culture, that's how we see things. Even if you're guilty and you go to prison and serve your time, you're still guilty of that crime, even when you've paid your time. And so hell, if you're guilty now, you're always guilty. Time doesn't take away your guilt. Only redemption provides atonement, not time. The redemption that Jesus provides his purchasing us from the slavery of sin that provides atonement and furthermore sinners don't stop sinning in hell and you're not cured of your sin so you're not free to go after a little bit of time it's eternity in hell sin will be unrestrained like we talked about there's not going to be a good influence there okay number eight last one last common objection people have to sin is Maybe the biggest one today is, I'm a pretty good person. We've kind of dealt with this a little bit along the way, but this is a big lie in our culture to tell us we're pretty good people. In America, when you look at 
most of the, the ways they measure things is pretty middle of the road, you know, more or less average or a little above, little below. We're usually not in the top 10 countries of like education or, you know, those types of categories, life expectancy. Uh, we're usually about middle of the pack. But America, what we're number one at is our self-esteem. We feel really good about our kind of mediocrity. We are, because we always tell ourselves we're good people, and self, we call self-esteem what the Bible calls that pride, which is uh, where all sin comes from. And so we're, we're very keen on we're pretty good people. But, and you might be a good person. That's why this could be maybe hard when people object. You might do good things. A lot, a lot of people do. People aren't good to the core, but people do do good things. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't compare all people and say, okay, the top 25% get to heaven, or even the top 50% get to heaven, or even the top 75% get to heaven. It's not about that, and that's a misconception. It's not on a curve. It's perfect and imperfect. And also, God doesn't judge on a scale. People have, maybe think that God puts all your good deeds on this scale, all your evil deeds on this scale, and if your good scale is more, then you're going to heaven. And people have these different ways they think God judges, but God doesn't judge that way. It's perfection and imperfection, and the only one perfect is Jesus. And that's why we need Jesus. And not just our culture, but all other religions, philosophies, lifestyles, want you to believe this, that you can earn your salvation, that you're a pretty good person. Uh, but that's what I love about Christianity. It's the only one that takes evil as seriously as it should. Because all other beliefs say, you know, yeah, the world is evil, the world is messed up, but people are pretty good and they can save themselves. Christianity says the world is evil, the world is messed up, and you're hopeless and you need a savior. You need God himself to come to save people. And it's kind of like, I mean, we don't like it when we have problems and people just kind of say, oh, it's not that bad. Like if you have cancer and someone says, oh, it'll probably clear up. And that's what the other philosophies say. I mean, the world is evil, but we can, we can work hard enough at it. No. The only, again, the only religion, philosophy, worldview that takes evil seriously is Christianity because it says we're the problem, so we're obviously not the cure. And, and those who think they're pretty good people, I, think, I thought about this song, Jesus Messiah. Uh, we sing this in church. Jesus Messiah. That's why I'm not... That's why I don't sing on the worship team. Uh, and what the bridge goes, something like, should I sing it again or should I just say it? I'll just say it. Yeah. All my hope is in you. You know, that's what we sing in that song. All my hope is in you. If you call yourself a pretty good person, you're kind of singing, all my hope is in me. And, you know, I, I don't know. That, it seems like a pretty flippant attitude, pretty self-righteous attitude to have about the evil that you've committed, that it's not all that bad and I can take care of it myself. And this, again, this is me. I've not been a Christian all that long. And a few years ago, I was, I was the one asking all these questions and objecting. And uh, just excuses. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's a, eight objections. And hopefully, maybe you're wondering those things or maybe you're wondering how to explain it. Maybe you know someone asking those questions. Maybe none of that applied, so I'm sorry. You know, you kind of wasted your night. But hope that's not the case. But now... To, to conclude all this, like I said, it's a little different tonight. We're not just going, you know, following the Bible, kind of going culturally here, apologetically defending the faith. 
But, but the big question here is, what's the big deal? I mean, why do Christians talk about sin so much? It seems like we're the only ones who do. I mean, other people talk about evil and bad things and problems, but only Christians talk about sin. Why do we talk about that so much? Like I started by saying, you can't be a Christian without knowledge of your sin. And there may be, there, there is a lot of objections to Jesus, a lot of objections to Christianity, a lot of objections to hell, a lot of objections to sin. And again, people write books on this, but the root of all those questions, why people ask those questions, is sin. And that's what Jesus says. All these, and I can relate to this, all the questions people have about these things, they're good questions. We don't want to fault anyone for asking. It means they're curious. But underneath that is, I'm a sinner and I want to keep doing what I'm doing and I don't want to submit to any authority but I still want to be told I can be connected with God or be a good person. And that's why Christianity is a tough sell, because we can't say that. That's not the God. Some people say they're Christians and say that, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach that. And this is what Jesus says. And this is, was, was important to me, because again, I used to be a huge anti-Christian guy, and I would ask all these questions. And here's, here's what's underneath all that. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, he says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And that's Jesus' words. And Jesus was there. He was performing miracles. He was healing people. He even resurrected. And that wasn't enough proof for most people. So like I said, you're not going to debate someone to be a Christian. These might help them open up their mind a little bit. And what's underneath it is, like he says, those men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Everyone practicing evil hates the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. The light has come to this world, he says. Jesus has come to the world. God has walked this earth as fully God and fully man to provide redemption for our sins. You know, that's the, the gospel, that we are sinners and we hate the light because the light exposes us, but God provides the payment for our sin debt himself because he loves us by sending his son to become a human, live by the power of the Holy Spirit, live a perfect life without sin, and die a sacrificial death that pays for everybody's sins because the payment for sin is death, and God's payment is going to be good enough to pay for everyone's sins who wants to accept it. it that's God's plan of redemption. That's, that's how he, he plans that's Christianity. That's how God saves us from our sins. So the first step, if you don't know Jesus, is this is why it's a hard sell. You have to admit you need a Savior. And it's not just, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but like I'm, I'm done. I'm all out of ideas. I, I can't do it on my own. And that's very hard to do. That's why it takes the Holy Spirit. But in Romans 10.9, it says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for, for your word and uh, just how timeless it is and how, how it applies across all cultures and all times and uh, that we can learn so much from it and that you sent your son 
to be the payment for our sins that we can never pay. So God, I, I pray that you would just lead us through your Holy Spirit to, if we're talking to people about you and they have these questions or other types of questions, that we'd seek you, we'd know your word and know how to, to answer those questions for people so that they could open their mind and their heart to you for, for you to work in them, Lord God, and bring them to salvation as you would want and as we want as Christians. And we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or give us a call at 800-357-4226. There's also a video of today's teaching available on our website, theriverchristianfellowship.com, and then click the media button. Don't forget to catch the evening service at 7 p.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship live on CSN.